Thank you for that um, warm introduction. It is a, a, a joy to be here, so I would like to thank ICSA and UBVO for inviting me and also for the support that they've given me across the years because I was here three years ago and some of that time I spent writing a research grant, uh, speaking to colleagues and picking people's brains and that, that research fellowship has enabled me to, to return. So I'm very grateful for that support. I do want to acknowledge, Elizabeth, you're quite right, the paper I'm delivering today is a collaborative piece of work between Stanley um, and some other colleagues at the University of Adelaide, Professors Vivian Moore and Michael Davies. But I'd also like to acknowledge um, other people who've informed my thinking around epigenetics and anthropology, so Dr Tanya Zivkovic and also Aaron Martin from the University of York in Toronto. And of course many other scholars who I'm not going to mention but who come from a range of disciplines but in particular philosophy of science, gender studies, genetics, life coursework and anthropology of course. So this is really the second part um, of a paper which has been published in Body and Society and it is a, a story in a sense and I, I, I do like to think of it as the second part building upon that, that first piece of work which I published last year. So this, this work comes, from, comes about from my Australian research of working in interdisciplinary spaces. And as an anthropologist working between social epidemiology, gender studies, as Elizabeth's already mentioned, public health and clinical medicine, and the differing ways in which obesity is understood and embodied and enacted. And I find myself uh, in lovely fieldwork sites, really, uh, switching between critical analyses of medical systems that seek to categorise and pathologise fatness and to medical science seminars that deal with epigenetic marks and DNA methylation, so a completely foreign language. It is common for me to be the only anthropologist in a clinical room and rare to find a life science in any anthropology or social science seminar on obesity. And I, I want to begin by setting the political scene because what has struck me, struck me very early on, was the intense politics of obesity and its competing epistemological fields with the war occurring between those taking a clear biological stance, what Michael Gard calls the obesity alarmists, and the social scientists, the sceptics, who problematise the very language of obesity. And the fire aimed at obesity science constructs medicine as the enemy and is highly critical of biological determinism, universalising the body and reliance on standardised measures such as the BMI. Extreme social constructionist positions, and of course there is a range of social constructionist stances, suggest that obesity science, and I quote here, is a state science. And its dominant discourse acts, and I quote, as a fascist structure, in the sense that it relies on a process that is saturated by ideology and intolerance regarding certain types of evidence, alternative discourses, and alleged non-normative knowledge and ways of knowing, for example, qualitative research. Accusations of intolerance are, of course, fired back at social scientists. An editorial in Nature recently states that too many social scientists remain immured in a nurture fortress, where the biological is rejected and dismissed as being irrelevant to social or anthropological explanations. The territorial reclaiming of fat studies is in direct opposition to the clinical term of obesity. So in fat studies, as a, as a discipline... Um, Obesity is always problematised in single quotations. And this is a clear example of the political attempt to question and destabilise the popular and powerful clinical language that is associated with weight. 
These science wars between the life sciences and social sciences boil down to a preoccupation as to whether obesity is real or constructed, nature or nurture, whether it is of consequence and whether the consequences are valued. Margaret Locke reminds us that the idea that nature is the premise of biology and nurture the premise of the social has been an entrenched academic institution in anthropology since Kroeber's ideas of the superorganic. She goes on to suggest that to this day, discussion about the interiority of the body is sparse in the discipline of cultural anthropology. Similarly, in other social science disciplines like gender studies, the category of woman is haunted by its conflation with nature and biology, and as Vicky Kirby notes, has become a cultural repository of the primordial, unruly passion, primitive deficiency and the dark continent. Nature, in its singular definition, is thus what Alamo and Heckman refer to as a potent ideological node that is treacherous terrain for feminism. And as a constructed category, nature is very much part of a grand narrative that is axiomatically tainted with essentialism, biomedical reductionism, patriarchy, oppression and stasis. And it is important to note a range of feminist stakes in these territorial wars on obesity. Fat is, after all, as Susie Orbach stated some time ago, a feminist issue. And they seem to still have quite a stake in the field. Elizabeth Wilson argues that while the early detachment of feminism from biological data and theories was a brilliant, indispensable political gesture, social constructionist positions have failed to acknowledge the biological reality of fat bodies in that flesh is literate and articulates itself. Social analyses of fat bodies have inadvertently left the physical body, the body proper, to the physicians and concede no place for nature at all. And as a result, as material feminist scholars have flagged, the biological forces that change, transform, constantly renew themselves and remodel themselves in interaction with the world have been overlooked. The nature-nurture divide has undoubtedly been a useful theoretical device, but as Nicholas Rose argues, and I quote, no longer are social theories thought progressive by virtue of their distance from the biological. Behind the scenes of important critiques of cultural representations of obesity, stigmatisation and calls to celebrate fatness, I began to hear fat studies researchers talking to each other at coffee at conferences about their own concerns with excess weight, their desire to lose weight and to become more healthy, despite their wish to leverage thinness away from its implicit association with good health, and development of diabetes due to large body sizes. Several scholars have been brave enough to write about these contradictions. Samantha Murray and Robin Longhurst, for example, have written about their fraught positioning in theorising fat embodiment in their academic work, yet struggling with their own experiences of fatness, leading to dieting and gastric banding, which they have written about. Moreover, I began to find untenable the disjuncture between a rejection of life science accounts of obesity and the ethics of what Nancy Twana might call willful ignorance. In arguing that obesity is socially constructed as a moral panic, then you risk ignoring the experiences of poverty and malnutrition that many people in a range of contexts grapple with. If obesity isn't real, as it is sometimes claimed, then you ignore the suffering and negate social justice issues that underpin obesity. So this presentation is an attempt to think through and put forward a theoretical framework that addresses these binary limits and brings the social and biological into conversation in the obesity literature without the disciplinary buttresses that we sometimes defend with flaming arrows. 
Thinking beyond Cartesian dualisms is, of course, not new in medical and social anthropology, and scholars in new reproductive technologies led the way some time ago. But the field of epigenetics has opened up possibilities for new theoretical conceptualisations of obesity. And this is a theoretical paper, and I'm presently conducting a large ethnographic study in the suburbs of an Australian city, exploring how people embody knowledge about epigenetics in relation to food, eating and bodies. How is this new knowledge about obesity science mobilised? And what, if any, impact does it have on everyday practices and people's ability or inability to make social change around food and eating? So I want to start by briefly looking at public perceptions of epigenetics. What does it mean to say, you are what your mother or your grandmother ate? These types of images and headlines reflect a powerful meta-discourse that has emerged in which women are blamed for both their reproductive physiology and their social role as mothers, constructing women in the generic as potentially contaminating future generations by creating obesity lineages. In relation to public understandings of obesity, various scholars, including myself and Sarah Richardson and Darlene McNaughton, have drawn attention to the hyper-responsibility invoked for mothers and a new scope for somatic reductionism in which women, from placenta to breast, from breast to lunchbox, from lunchbox to dinner table, are blamed for passing obesity onto their children and grandchildren. So this popular conflation of women's reproductive and eating bodies, of reproduction and digestion, with the transmission of obesity, draws upon recent paradigmatic developments in scientific research about the origins of health and disease and how adult chronic disease might be determined by the womb environment. This new paradigm in which epigenetics, developmental origins and life course science is central has led to maternal obesity now being understood to contribute to obesity in children through intrauterine factors that alter fetal metabolism regarding growth, fat deposition and insulin regulation. And as a result, the interiority of women's re reproductive bodies is brought sharply into focus, not only as a causal agent in the so-called obesity epidemic, but also in the potential, also the potential solution. I want to move beyond the Foucauldian critique of the biopolitical management and surveillance of maternal bodies and focus on the potentiality of this relatively new but somewhat diffuse science of nutritional epigenetics. This potentiality, and I use that word in the vein that Taussig, Hoyer and Helmreich suggest, of epigenetic understandings of obesity science offers an analytical space to interrogate the complex interplay of biology, agency and society. And I argue that developments in obesity science are challenging anthropologists to think more deeply about the premise of past critiques, to reflect on what Lindquist and Maloney call the use of outdated and out-of-touch folk biology, and to re-engage with post-genomic views of biology. I begin by briefly outlining what nutritional epigenetics is to the extent that it is definable, and it's not my task really to define that science, and its important role in current developments in obesity science in order to recognise how bodies are embedded in recursive material, socioeconomic and historical contexts across time and space. And I extend Bourdieu's habitus into the materiality of bodies to develop a concept of what we've called biohabitus to help us think how bodies enfold molecular and social environments into their growth, thus allowing us to expand our understanding of habitus in light of epigenetics. 
And as Fitzgerald and Callard suggest in their own work on alliances between social sciences and neurosciences, these spaces of interaction are speculative and experimental in their entanglements. This paper thus seeks to contribute to a new vocabulary that begin, can begin to allow anthropologists who work in obesity studies to develop new conceptual and methodological apparatus that can engage bidirectionally with the conceptual models proposed by developmental origins, life course and epigenetic thinking. Epigenetics is a heterogeneous field of molecular biology that is not new, but has grown prodigiously in the last decade. So it has been around since about the 1940s, but it has much more cultural um, profile of late. Broadly, it investigates the way the functioning of genes is modified by the environment. It looks beyond DNA to the course of one's life and the socioeconomic contexts in which lives take place and at its most controversial, to intergenerational histories of exposures and experiences. This entails a constant interplay of biological and social bodies, of materiality, experience and representation. Locke and Nguyen call this a new approach to the human body in which the reality of the material is not denied for one moment, but equally the biological body is not simply accepted as a universal entity that we are increasingly able to, to apprehend comprehensively by means of scientific investigation. <coughs> there are many different areas within epigenetics, such as nutritional, environmental, molecular and epidemiological, and it should be of deep interest to anthropologists, as it is, as Landecker and Panofsky state, the study of factors such as nutrition, pollution and stress, stress in relation to gene regulation. Hannah Landecker claims that epigenetics is deposing genetics as the prime mover in explaining life processes and is concerned with the expression of genes as phenotypes that are not locked away in cells, protected and untouched by the way one lives or what one does, as conventional thinking about genes suggests. It provides an alternative understanding of the ways in which social and biological experiences and processes intertwine across the life course. This is not biological determinism, but a direct engagement with the social and how it alters, dims or switches genes on or off. In addition to musical metaphors, Bridget Nerlich notes a host of other metaphors that are of course invoked when describing epigenetics. Of epigenetics as switching lights on or off, of dimming and brightening, or epigenetics like punctuation as software to the hardware of genomes and like post-it notes in the Book of Life. Epigenetic change is continuous and dynamic within all individuals, but is of particular importance in critical developments, or critical periods of development rather, during early life. In mammals, epigenetic changes have been shown to result from a range of prenatal exposures, including poor maternal diet, alcohol, pesticides and environmental pollutants. This is not evolutionary time, but what Ramirez calls life in the making a Lamarckian temporality of change that can occur within a relatively short space, short time space of decades, which is interesting to think about if you're thinking about the incidence of obesity. I want to move now to discussing where the linking of epigenetics and obesity came from, as it does have a clear genealogy. In medical sciences, there is strong evidence to suggest that obesity and chronic diseases like cardiac disease and diabetes can be transmitted across generations through two interconnected environments, the intrauterine environment and the socioeconomic environment. 
And as I've already suggested, for the most part, women's bodies have been the focus of attention in terms of the reproductive and social processes involved in pregnancy, maternal diets and mothering. The history of this thought goes back to the 1960s and the early epidemiological work undertaken by UK physician and epidemiologist David Barker on the associations between birth weights, place, socioeconomic positioning and the development <coughs> of adult chronic disease. So in the 1980s, David Barker, who uh, unfortunately passed away, I think in 2013, from the University of Southampton and his colleagues advanced the theory that chronic disease originated, at least in part, in the womb. And Barker's central argument was that adverse conditions early in development and particularly during intrauterine life could result in permanent changes to the baby's physiology and metabolism. It was suggested that the fetus <coughs> makes physiological adaptations in response to its environment to prepare itself for postnatal life. This process was originally known as fetal programming, although much better terms, and the terms you'll hear in epigenetics and DOHAD, developmental origins, are developmental plasticity or phenotype induction. And the process is thought to be an adaptive response, whereby environmental cues or clues produce a phenotype fitted to the predicted future environment. Of particular relevance to the Barker hypothesis was poor maternal nutrition before and during pregnancy, contributing to reduced fetal growth, low birth weight and development of chronic conditions in later life. Barker's early work focused on the gendered socioeconomic effects of maternal undernutrition in pregnancy, so he was quite broad in his thinking. And he argued that these associations were related to inequalities in health and specifically to poor nutrition and the health of mothers. His work throughout the 90s looked more closely at the life course of individuals rather than regions and towns in the UK, which is what he had been doing, in which he continued to draw attention to geographical and socioeconomic constraints on the health of women and their children. Despite some very sharp criticism and controversy from within the medical scientific community for at least a decade, so this just wasn't accepted, this was actually um, hotly contested, the central themes of Barker's hypothesis are now firmly established and evidence of associations in the form of statistical connections between low birth weight and increased risk of chronic disease in adulthood accumulated from some, very, some other very large cohort studies in Sweden and Finland, for example. Barker's work came to be known as the fetal origins hypothesis and Barker himself preferred this because I think he really disliked having this hypothesis named after him and then broadened into the development into the developmental origins of health and adult disease, DOHAD is the, the acronym. And today DOHAD programs lead international um, funding research and is firmly on the agenda of the WHO, so it has that sort of profile at the, at the present. Perhaps the most well-known and cited example of this work and the intergenerational transmission is the Dutch winter famine. Towards the end of World War II, Germany imposed a food embargo in Western Holland in which all the roads um, and transport of food and fuel supplies were cut. And because it was so incredibly cold, all the canals were also frozen, so there was no other way of getting food and fuel in. 
at the height of the famine, which really only went for a, a period of months from the end, from December 1944 until about April 1945, the official daily ra rations vary between 400 and 800 calories. And it's reported that people resorted to eating frozen tulip bulbs. That's how desperate things were. And through malnutrition and exposure to extreme winter conditions, about 30,000 Dutch people died. Detailed birth records collected by midwives and through food ration cards during the Dutch winter famine have enabled life scientists to analyse the long-term effects of prenatal exposure to famine. And women who became pregnant and had limited food intake during this period altered the epigenetic material of embryos in the early stages of development. And the effects of this can still be observed some 60 years later. And this is Tessa Roseboom, who's one of the key scientists who does research into the Dutch winter famine. And she was recently in Adelaide, and she, when she presented, she put up a picture of a woman from, from the Dutch winter famine standing next to a bicycle. And then she put up a picture of a food rations card because the, the Dutch were so good at collecting all this information, not only from what types of food they were eating, but also from the midwives, so the, um, the weight of the babies, the length of the babies, the, the weight of the placenta and so forth, you know, very detailed records. And she said, look closely at that food rations card, what's the name that you'll see on that card? And so we all peered closely and we could see that the surname was Roseboom. And the picture which she had put up was actually of her grandmother who was pregnant with her mother during that, that time. So it put a, an extra sort of personal spin on, on the presentation. So studies done on the children of these women found that they have a three-fold greater incidence of coronary heart disease as adults, increased risk of obesity and high blood pressure. And these types of studies suggest a mechanism by which the wars and famines and abundant harvests of one generation can affect the metabolic systems of another. It could be suggested that such findings might be explained by applying a social determinants of health model which examines the effects of structural factors like social class, place, race and gender on health and well-being. And while this model continues to be extremely valuable in identifying the intersections of social, political and economic structures and patterns that impact on health, it tends to take biomedicine for granted in that bodies remain universal entities. Developmental origins and epigenetics, like local biologies, recognises that biological variation happens due to different historical circumstances. Biology is thus similarly embedded in the same, to the same extent that socio-historical forces are. So the early Barker and Dohad work was premised on observational epidemiological and animal studies. So in sort of mapping out this genealogy, methodology is very important. So Barker's hypothesis was very much based on associations and observational epidemiological work. Doe had work, you know, then the animal models came into the fray. What was missing was a mechanism to understand this process, and epigenetics offered this mechanism as it is concerned with how prenatal contexts impact on molecular processes such as methylation of fetal growth. So nutritional epigenetics is a convergence of the Barker hypothesis of fetal origins, developmental origins of health and adult disease and life course analysis. And it has been enthusiastically incorporated into these other areas to demonstrate how early life matters. And what unites these different theoretical approaches is a common concern 
as Hannah Landecker notes, of how things outside the body, such as food or stress, are transformed into the biology of the body and transmitted across generations. The social is brought directly into focus, no longer a poor cousin of biological explanation, although, as Maurizio Maloney and Tester warn, possibly in danger of reductionism and digitisation. Thus, biology and social are not mutually exclusive or arranged hierarchically in order of importance, as one might find, in out outmoded stratigraphic views of biology, such as the biopsychosocial model. In all of these theories, food is a bridge or pathway that makes the uterus a social and relational space, not just a biological space. In critical periods of development, in utero, in early childhood and in adolescence, so they're suggested there are these key windows, Landecker explains that the body goes through periods of plasticity and openness to the environment, in which nature and culture enfold upon each other. I've just put in there the, the sort of classic rudimentary uh, mechanism which has food, so nutritional epigenetics, and the methylation processes. So metaphorical rendering of this process, completely decontextualised. This is not the simple formula of a pregnant mother nourishing her child with the food she eats, but how food can affect the very systems that metabolise food and become part of the body in time, not by building bones and tissues, but by leaving an imprint on a dynamic bodily process. This is, Landecker suggests, a molecular politics of eating in which food enters women's bodies and in a sense never leaves it, because the memory of the outside environment ingested via food is imprinted in a cellular level on the DNA of the foetuses. And in this context, biology is thus highly relational, and constantly changing and comprises of molecules that are in relation to one another within long chains, and I quote from Landecker, and within long chains or nets of causality across time and space that reach in and through the body. Food becomes mutually constitutive of the nature and functioning of organs and systems through a biological being in each other, which is a term I borrow from Aaron Martin's work on fetal, fetal microchemism. So, for example, food intake might influence production of proteins such as growth factors that regulate how much cells divide during development and determine the size of an organ. This is, for, an exa for example, a powerful framework for understanding the high rates of intergenerational renal disease as amongst some remote Indigenous Australian communities. Poor maternal diets result in underweight babies who are born into and grow up in environments that are often impoverished. And the number of nephrons that you are born with, and nephrons are vital to, to filtering blood in the kidneys, peaks at 36 weeks in gestation. Nephrogenesis is complete before birth and is strongly correlated with intrauterine nutrition and birth weight. And when babies are undernourished in utero, the, the placenta goes into protective mode and diverts blood to the vital organs, such as the brain. So nephron numbers are reduced through maternal undernutrition and this is thought to explain, in part, the high incidence of renal disease amongst Indigenous Australians in the Northern Territory. Although the first focus of developmental origins research was on the effects of maternal undernutrition, I'm sure you can see where this is going, and on restricted fetal growth and low birth weight, the issue of maternal and hence fetal overnutrition gained prominence in the context of the so-called global obesity epidemic. 
And maternal obesity arguably alters the intrauterine milieu in a number of ways through an excess of glucose, free fatty acids and amino acids. Thus, in the early 2000s, the idea that prenatal overnutrition, hypernutrition, might affect lifelong risk of obesity was mobilised to explain a relationship between fat mothers, fat babies and the transmission of obesity through generations, with epigenetic mechanisms subsequently invoked. Investigations began as to whether mothers who were obese or who had elevated glucose levels during pregnancy overfed their unborn children and in doing so may have set them on a pathway to greater adiposity throughout their lives. Furthermore, it was suggested that the increasing prevalence of obesity in women of reproductive age would potentially create transgenerational amplification of obesity and metabolic consequences in subsequent generations. And perhaps some of the most... um, Evocative work, I think, comes from um, Ines, Ines Varela, who is uh, an epidemiologist working um, with men, women, and children in Mexico and looking at nutritional um, transitions and the ways in which consumption has impacted on traditional diets. Uh, so that's Ines there, who she told me that she actually is 159 centimetres. I'm about 174, I think. And this is a grandmother with a granddaughter. So these uh, intergenerational effects through nutrition, uh, that's the focus, nutrition, uh, on stunting, dwarfing and obesity is, is prime to Inna's work. And she's also incorporating some of the modes of consumption and capitalism which have influenced this change in diet. So Coca-Cola is very invested in these communities buying furniture for families Soft drinks are the, are the drink which um, drink of choice, I guess. So the fetal origins hypothesis and epigenetic transmission is now firmly part of the childhood obesity lexicon, extending the understanding of obesity back to the future and locating the origins and potentiality of obesity in the fetal environment. Maternal obesity is thought to alter the intrauterine milieu in those number of ways, suggesting that both undernutrition and overnutrition can cause obesity in adulthood, so it's almost like a a U-shape. There are very few social scientists engaged in the implications of this obesity science. McNaughton understands Barker's hypothesis from a Cartesian body-mind model in which maternal nutrition and its effects of the foetus are constructed negatively in a biological determinist discourse. In this Cartesian model, nature, that is everything that is viewed as prenatal, inborn, congenital and innate, is viewed negatively and separated from nurture, that is everything that is postnatal, acquired and learned. This separation positions birth as a clear marker of before and after, as a clear line in the sand. In her book, The Mirage of Space Between Nature and Nurture, historian and philosopher of science Fox Keller suggests that there is in fact nothing special about birth as a cut-off point. But social science scholars continue to use this as an epistemological framing of inner and outer environments, thus favouring the nurture fortress. Moreover, such an interpretation rests on the assumption that bodies and environments are separate entities, open only through the physical means of childbirth. And it is worth noting that many of the early origins researchers do not see birth as a clear divide. So what has struck me in engaging with this science is on the one hand the outright rejection of this work by social scientists as determinist, what Elizabeth Wilson calls in her book Gut Feminism, 
the anti-biology stance and their use of outmoded concepts of biology. And on the other hand, the key challenges that this science raises to anthropology. Margaret Locke argues that recognition of intergenerational continuities other than by the transmission of DNA brings about a crucial ontological shift. An embedded body is not the product of interactions of nature and nurture, but by definition is situated in a constant becoming and entanglement of nature-nurture that transcends generations, raising profound questions about concepts of self and body as clearly demarcated entities. Moreover, the environments of bodies and in which bodies are situated can no longer be marked by inside and outside, as there is a remarkable openness and simultaneity of spaces and relationships. Environments are interconnected and in constant communication at both the molecular and structural level. These are dynamic and relational environments of mutual interchange in which the material body is not positioned as a priori to the social dimensions. So I want to now turn to how, as anthropologists, we might theorise this in a more familiar way. So I want to turn to Bourdieu. What sort of conversation might Bourdieu have with epigeneticists? So epigenetic concepts of openness, flexibility, plasticity, mutual interactions, reproduction and intergenerational transmission have remarkable resonances with Bourdieu's framework of habitus. And I want to suggest that Bourdieu's habitus is a useful frame to extend to biology in the making as it captures both the embodied performative aspect of social structures and the mechanism by which they are transmitted through historical time. And as we well know, the taken-for-granted practices of everyday life are learned, modified and passed on. Successive generations reproduce and transform a world inherited from their parents' generation. Moreover, class-based cultural advantages are passed from parents to children through the habitus, reproducing social stratification. Everyday eating practices and food preferences, for example, are, and what constitutes health and healthy bodies are taken-for-granted dispositions that relate to one's social class, gender and identity. What if we extended Bourdieu's habitus to engage with the epigenetic transmission of obesity? Can we imagine the epigenetic transmission as a biohabitus of the molecular and structural processes of food and eating incorporating each other in Deleuzean folds of the social and biological environments interacting and responding to each other across the life course and intergenerationally? So as I've mentioned, Barker's earlier work highlighted that socioeconomic environments are key to nutrition and health. And we know that people experiencing socioeconomic disadvantage are at an increased risk of obesity. And this pattern is particularly pronounced amongst women and women in disadvantaged and post-colonial contexts. The developmental origins theory potentially offers a way to understand these health inequalities by giving attention to the living conditions, health and nutrition of young women, pregnant mothers and their children. In his analysis of the transmission of obesity, Jonathan Wells notes that poor maternal diets, fetal exposure to maternal work during pregnancy and gender bias through preferential feeding of male children means that obesity is structurally embedded in socio-cultural contexts. Education, social and economic independence, as well as the role of fathers and spermatogenesis are all important factors in understanding obesity. These interactions between habitus and molecular processes in women's bodies are all examples of what Bourdieu refers to as embodied capital. For Bourdieu, cultural capital declined and died with its bearer. 
with, and this is a quote from Bourdieu, with their biological capacity, their memory. But in the framework of epigenetics, I suggest, following Wells, that many components of the phenotype can be regarded generically as capital, which can then be potentially transferred from one generation to another. Like Bourdieu, Wells distinguishes different forms of capital, somatic capital, the mother's body, or liquid capital, energy stores, which have different consequences for the genome and development. Extending Bourdieu further, maternal capital is subject to competition, best encapsulated in the notion of differential social status. Thus, the potentiality for reproductive processes to be adversely affected by socioeconomic environments is dependent on the embodied capital of one's habitus. Wakant reminds critics that Bourdieu introduced habitus in his Algerian work in order to account for the colonial politics of cultural disjuncture and social transformation. Habitus never dictates reproduction of the same practice, as it is the meeting between a skilled agent and a pregnant world, acquired over time in diverse circumstances and social spaces, that may itself undergo swift and sweeping changes. Habitus is not static or deterministic, as some critics suggest, but flexible, open and adaptable to change. Similarly, epigenetics is malleable, and core to epigenetic thinking is the idea that molecular processes are sensitive to environmental cues rather than being exclusively endogenously determined and provide biological systems with flexibility, the capability to respond to environmental challenges. Extending the hand of habitus of cultural reproduction to the molecular materiality of the body via epigenetics offers an opening for anthropologists to develop new theoretical insights into complex spatiotemporalities of bodies, agencies and environments. Biohabitus is not the same as environmental epigenetics, so you could argue, I think, well, you're just replacing one word with another, that biohabitus is, is just the same as environmental epigenetics as habitus is concerned with embodied practice, whereas environmental epigenetics is limited to dose-response relationships and exposures between two things, reproducing the artificial dichotomy of the environment in its singular phrase, things outside the body and things inside the body. I would suggest, as Tim Ingold notes, that, and I quote, we have either to change our understanding of the environment or to drop the concept altogether. Literally, an environment is that which surrounds. But how can a thing that knows no boundaries, that continually takes the medium into itself as it spills into the medium, or more simply, that breathes in and out, be surrounded? Environments, if we think of them epigenetically, literally travel back and forth through multiple scales, across time and space, through and into bodies at molecular, cellular and metabolic levels, and across generations. Alana Singh notes that in epigenetics, the environment so far has focused on proxies and risks, not the environment of social networks, social experiences, group dynamics, or complex social interactions. Practice theory can offer important insights into the mundane and ordinary socialised activities and agency of bodies, what people do in their day-to-day lives, as Elizabeth Roberts' bioethnographic work in Mexico City attests to. This includes the agency of what may have previously been thought of as inert matter, passive matter. Fat is an example of what new materialist theorist Jane Bennett calls non-human agency at work. In the life sciences, fat is recognised as an endocrine organ, not just as a passive storage site. 
An adipose tissue generates more than 600 different signalling proteins known as adicopines. And the most famous of these is the hormone called leptin, which communicates to other tissues in the central nervous system, including specific regions of the brain, about hunger and satiety, thus regulating appetite. In these entangled assemblages of intraactivity, fat has what might be termed biological agency, as fat cells chatter to each other, sending and receiving signals to and from other cells, organs and systems. Amelia Sanabria similarly suggests that adipocytes are given substantial agency and describes these fat cells as hungry, working to actively subvert attempts to make rational choices. I love that idea of this, you know, this fight between these hungry fat cells and you know, reaching for the, the next donut. Karen Barad's agential realism might understand this as the ontological inseparability of intra-acting agencies, where materialities, including fat, emerge through interactions rather than interactions, which imply separate things that come together. Biohabitus invites us to think of nature and culture not as different Cartesian concepts, but rather as simultaneous ingredients in which difference can dwell within the same space rather than between. Like a Russian doll or chimera, biohabitus entails a mutual constitution and interchange of different bodies and persons through history. And literally, like a Russian doll, the egg that became us was in our mother's ovary when she was in the womb of her mother, being exposed and modified genetically by her experiences. Hence we are in part directly affected by the, effect, the events in our grandmother's pregnancy and the events that influenced her reproductive capacity. Biohabitus suggests that social practice is embodied not only in early childhood but much earlier, ontogenetically, in the memory traces of molecular and cellular lives and in utero. And like epigenetic processes, biohabitus is conceptually permeable and responsive to what is going on in multiple environments and it's suggested that it can be reversed. Its permeability is thus distinct from earlier sociobiology accounts that studied the evolutionary significance of behaviours and saw social behaviours as genetically fixed. Fox Keller and Ingold and Paulson identify a peculiar difficulty in trying to overcome the impasse of Cartesian dualism, in that new concepts like biosocial or indeed biohabitus are trapped by the very same dualistic language that they aim to critique, and as concepts are thus prone to the very kinds of entrapment they are trying to escape. It might be argued that a concept of biohabitus simply drifts back into the core categories of nature and culture in which nature, fetal conditions, and culture, everything outside the body, are simply put together. It is extraordinarily difficult to conceptualise a dynamic, multidirectional and multidimensional process that spans intracellular and social environments across time and space. And I suggest that the molecular processes of protein folding provides a metaphorical model to overcome the simple merging of two distinct parts. Having just read parts of Natasha Meyer's new book on protein crystallography, rendering life molecular, which I highly recommend. It's about visualising how the, um, the performance uh, by researchers is done in terms of this crystallography. I, I apologise in advance for my rather clumsy description over this next paragraph. 
So central to epigenetics are the ways in which proteins change shape and configuration and attach, attach themselves to genes. Proteins are like long chains, uh, sorry, proteins are long chains like molecules and under appropriate conditions, most proteins that are active in biological systems coil up and rearrange lengths of the chain so as to assume a characteristic shape. And this process is called protein folding because the protein undergoes changes which appear like folding. Protein folding is akin to Deleuze's visceral philosophy of folding, a model that provides rethinking of bodies outside of the polarisations imposed by the mind-body, nature-culture, subject-object and interior-exterior oppositions. In everyday acts of folding, like folding a napkin or a chair, parts of the folded object are brought into contact with each other and there is the inside and the outside. Yet in Deleuze's world, the inside and the outside are not two surfaces but combine the past, memory, and a present, subjectivity, as two sides of a single surface. Deleuze's concept of the fold is a critique of typical Cartesian accounts of subjectivity that presume a simple interiority and exteriority, appearance and essence, or surface and depth. In Deleuzean folding, everything folds, unfolds, and refolds. And we can observe other folds between inside and outside, depending on how perception occurs. A Deleuzean simultaneity of inside and outside is similar to epigenetic transmission of obesity, where bodies are projected into the distance like an echo of memory and compress themselves into the foreground, the tension of the present moment. Conceiving biohabitus as a series of Deleuzean folds, so this is my own meta metaphorical rendering, resonates with an epigenetic understanding of a body, and I quote from Nevoner here, that is heavily impregnated by its own past and by the social and material environment within which it dwells. It is a body that is imprinted by evolutionary and transgenerational time, by early life, and a body that is highly susceptible to changes in its social and material environment. These are open and emergent bodies in which agency is expressed through a series of loops, organs, flows, energies, corporeal substances, incorporeal events, intensities and durations. Biohabitus's focus on social practice and materialism extends Locke's well-known concept of local biologies and Nevoner's customary biologies into the molecular agency of bodies. It offers an opportunity to conceptualise the role that anthropologists might play methodologically and theoretically in their relations with life sciences and vice versa. In obesity studies, ethnography can assist in documenting the biohabitus of food and eating and how, and I, I'm using Emily Yates Doer's lovely work here, discourses of metabolic health become known not only through quantitative measures such as weight, <coughs> blood pressure, caloric energy, centimetres of abdominal fat and grams of carbohydrates or proteins, but tastes, intimacy, pleasures, hungers and desires. The various biological measures and samples that are collected need to be placed in conversation with people's life trajectories and sensorial environments, following the movement of disease transmission mechanisms, not just inside individual bodies, but also in people's histories and social relationships. And this is precisely what Elizabeth Roberts does in her bioethnographic approach to lead exposure in Mexico City. She takes biological data seriously but precludes such data from being viewed as representing the real exposure story or the universal 
story of lead exposure everywhere. The goal of Robert's research is to produce innovative questions and more complex accounts of exposure, epigenetics and the relationships between disease and life circumstances than would not be possible through either ethnography or epigenetics alone. Ingold, Ingold argues that, every, that understanding how people dwell, that is how they use and conduct their bodies in everyday life, is a genuinely anthropological question. And if we assume that dwelling leaves its marks on the body, trying to understand these marks also with biological means <coughs> seems only sensible. If nature and culture are entangled, it is only sensible to assume that complex phenomena such as menopause should occur differently in North America and Japan. Such an agenda is easier to envisage with a customary biology and it requires that both anthropologists and biologists understand their knowledge practices as situated and contingent. This, as Nevoiner argues, is a biology based on patterns of practice and regularities rather than natural laws, a biology and biomedicine that is attuned to investigation of bodies which are being used by people in culturally specific ways to which they have grown accustomed over time, and a biology that may be able to productively engage anthropology in social inquiry and vice versa. Moving beyond earlier and important critiques of obesity doesn't mean suddenly abandoning the lessons we've learned from social constructionism, post-structuralism and so on, but to recognise the limits of these positions with respect to a reappraisal of what Singh calls disciplinary defence systems. There is, continuing, there is a continuing role for social scientists to point to slippages in how epigenetics may be misrepresented in public discourse. Maurizio Maloney, in his forthcoming book, Political Biology, does explicitly this in his examination of the historical phases of the socio-political implications of human hereditary, from eugenics to the current post-genomic phase. Through the lens of epigenetics, my task as an anthropologist is to extend a reach beyond the individual life course and engage with the societal processes that are shaping them. This means presenting obesity not so much as, and I quote from Yoshizawa, the corporal manifestation of accumulated poor choices of individuals or their mothers, but rather a materialisation of our social and material situatedness in space and time, indicating diffuse biosocial responsibility that transcends the individual and present time. To conclude, I want to suggest that epigenetics is not only an object of study, but might be, should be, conceptualised analytically as a potentiality, as it crosses both life sciences and anthropology in its opening of new imaginary spaces. Moreover, naming and framing something in terms of its potential, as Taussig, Hoyer and Helmreich state, involves power and has political effects in the world. The politics of this potentiality are taken up in various contexts. For example, epigenetics offers a powerful framework for something that Indigenous Australians have known for many years that bodies are not individual and are extended to persons and things beyond the physical individual across differing, differing times and spaces. It is Indigenous Australians who are using epigenetic theories to politically leverage support for past colonial traumas, arguing that epigenetics explains the continuing intergenerational cycles of poor health and poverty. Similarly, Yates Doer states that epigenetic theories have the potential for facilitating public recognition about something that anthropologists have known for decades. 
bodies and the cultural technologies and artefacts around which they coalesce are not just individually performed, but are built up over time in individuals, families and communities. The question is, why does it take molecular biology to raise this to a public profile? And is epigenetics in danger of eating up or gobbling up Indigenous knowledges and modes of being? And I took this as a, a snap from Twitter at an um, international Dohad conference where this link between Indigenous knowledges and uh, attaching it to epigenetics and developmental origins has, be has become quite, um, quite a, a useful political connection. Potentiality is enchanting, but it entails danger. In that popular discourses of obesity science burdens people, overwhelmingly women, with the impossible responsibility for preventing dietary illness in themselves and others. In all of this, we need to remind ourselves that while epigenetics might be good to think with, the field of epigenetics is still mostly at the level of animal studies and largely confined to molecular processes. Moreover, as Maloney recently argued in New Genetics and Society, inheritance of acquired characteristics is a double-edged sword. Also, bad habits can become bad biology, and the scars of past exposures and traumas can give rise to ideas to, to specific groups being too damaged to be rescued. We cannot be too sure in thinking that all political regimes have a vested interest in social equity and social justice. Locke concurs in her caution. Ideologies of gene centrism may thus be effectively reinforced rather than overcome by epigenetic findings. The political implications of epigenetics need continual interrogation and careful attention to the ways in which this science is mobilised. Whatever does happen in this uncertain and fast-paced genomic space, when epigeneticists claim, as they have done at an international meeting I attended earlier this year, that they are redefining what it means to be human, anthropologists need to be at that table. Thank you.